SUB students. How has your week been, Jordan? Busy. Yeah? Busy. busy. <laughs> All types of stuff with your projects and stuff. We've been having yeah, some yeah. technical difficulties over here, so we did just record this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but we are, we figured it out, I think. And um, we do apologize for not uploading last week. Today is just me and Jordan again. Ben is not with us, but I promise it will not be less of an experience. Um, so what kind of projects are you working on, Jordan? So I'm basically, basically working on one huge project. I'm basically combining for two of my classes. S- since I'm, since originally I was, p- I was supposed to create two projects, one for my motor learning, learning control class and, uh, and research in human performance. But, but for my motor learning class, I said I was doing, doing how to create like a project based on multitasking. I decided to take that project, combine it with my, combine it with my research in human performance class to make it to pretty much carry two birds with one stone. So it's gonna be, so for both of, so instead of doing two just two different projects, I'm just gonna do one huge project, and hope it'll go out well. Yeah, is that for like your end of semester? Um, yeah, just pretty much for just just for my class, like for the end of semester. Right on, right on. It's so crazy how fast this semester is going by. We're already in what. Almost. Week six, almost week seven. Yep, and like two more. Spring break's coming up here soon. Yep. The seventh through the eleventh. Yep. Of March. That's yep. exciting. Are you gonna go home for that? No, I'm gonna stay here on campus. Practice. Yep, practice. Right on. Um. Well, I had to go get a COVID test this morning because I am getting surgery. If you haven't heard, on my finger, I have a cyst. And uh, it's just a little cyst right on my middle finger. And when I say cyst, I feel like uh, people get this image in their mind of like a pussy, gooey, gross cyst. But that's not what mine's like. It's not, my hand's not like that. (laughs) Thank God. That would be disgusting if it was. Um, It's just like a little, it's basically like there's a little pebble underneath my skin. And it's pretty inconvenient. So I'm happy that I'll be getting it removed. But I am terrible with... uh, needles blood cutting stitches anything like that i pass out my brain is just like nope goodbye <laughs> so you know there's there's like a flight or fight response oh yeah mine is flight mine's just damn <laughs> i know it's kind of unfortunate like what if i need to defend myself in a situation like that and my brain just passes out like hopefully i'll never have to be in a situation like that yeah but uh yeah i had to get a COVID test this morning so i can have surgery on tuesday and the lab called me on the way over here and said that I'll have to get another one tomorrow because the results were inconclusive, which I have no symptoms. I have not been exposed to my knowledge, so I highly doubt that I have it. Um, but just to be safe, I suppose, I have, I'll go in tomorrow again and uh, stick a Q-tip up my nose and get the show on the road. But it's so weird because it's like it's such a small surgery, yeah. but it's still surgery. So oh, they yeah. send you like this giant packet. And they gave me, like, special soap, and it's, mm. like, antibacterial soap that I'm supposed to shower with the night before. Yeah. And, like, use my, like, basically disinfect my whole body oh. <laughs> before I go in. And I'm, like, okay, that's kind of weird, but whatever. Better safe than sorry. I mean, if yeah. it reduces the risk of infection, I'll take it. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, it feels funny because it's such a small surgery, and I won't even be all the way knocked out. I'll be, like, consciously s- sedated. So they'll, like, have laughing gas and, like, numb it and stuff so that I don't freak out which i still might freak out that's still possible i will not rule that one out but that is what's going on in my life i'm pretty uh 
nervous and excited. Because oh, yeah. It's a six-week recovery. Can you believe that? Six weeks just for a small. Just for a tiny little cut on my finger. And, huh. well, the way it's sitting, it's right on the joint of my finger. Yeah. So, like, I can't really move it until mm. it's completely healed or else it'll scar weird. And then I won't – then, like, my motion will be restricted. Oh, yeah. I'm like, dang. That kind of sucks. <laughs> it's on my right hand, too. So, I'm going to not be able to write with a pencil or anything. Yeah. But we shall see. I haven't had, like, an actual surgery before. I've never done my, like – Everybody, and well, not everybody, but a lot of kids in high school tore, like, their ACLs and yeah. their meniscus. Have you ever torn your knee? I uh, had a couple of dislocations. Dislocations yeah, of your knee or your shoulder? No, just knee, knees and shoulders. Basically, my knees. Nice. And, like, basically popped out my left shoulders. But oh, fun. Oh, yeah, but I popped it back in, so. Oh, no biggie. Nah. Just I mean, I mean kind of, like, lost some range of motion, but. It's a cool party trick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Guys, watch this. <laughs> um, my shoulders are really messed up from volleyball. Ooh. So. But I've never dislocated them or anything. But And swimming, too. Swimming messed up my shoulders. Probably my fault uh, from swimming like a dummy, but uh. it is what it is. I was 16. <laughs> uh, this is uh, pretty breaking news as of right now. Uh, Russia has invaded the Ukraine. Um, and there's actually this type of conflict goes all the way back to the Cold War. And because that's when Russia initially lost Ukraine was with the fall of the Soviet Union in the early, the late 80s, early 90s, around that time. And Ukraine, obviously, it's independent. It thinks of its, they think of themselves as an independent nation. They don't want to be ruled by Russia. Oh, yeah. And uh, they want to join NATO, which is the uh, North Atlantic Treaty, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, and... Or it's sometimes called the Western Alliance. And with the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States promised Russia that they would not expand westward with this alliance. And if Ukraine was to join NATO, then uh, they'd be breaking that promise made 30 years ago. Yep. And that's what Putin's pretty mad about right now. Uh, he, it's obvious that he sees, like, he sees Ukraine as a loss and he's looking for redemption. Oh, yeah. Instead of, like, seeing him, them as their own nation, yep. you know? And it's it's really scary, honestly, because this is, like, the stuff that makes wars. I mean, he has. He's declared war on Ukraine, and Ukraine has declared war on Russia. And um, Biden is – the Biden administration is trying to figure out how they're going to uh, deal with that. If they're going to help Ukraine and then go into war with Russia, because we want to – ultimately, we want to avoid – war of all kind you know yeah so it's just it's it's very um it's spooky it's spooky stuff definitely pray for the ukraine if you i've seen the videos of the bombings and stuff and how like when russia invaded i think they just invaded last night yeah it's uh it's february 24th 2022 right now the day we're recording so i think they invaded on the 23rd yeah it's been social been like the videos of the videos of the wars been social been like basically going around all over social media at this mm -hmm. point i've seen a lot of it on tiktok yeah and, same and that's why it's on facebook too mm -hmm. and twitter and with that we have to all be careful and make sure that our information is correct okay yep. just because you see it on facebook or tiktok or youtube or it doesn't mean it's right it doesn't mean it's right at all so make sure you are practicing media literacy in that aspect before you go and uh spew this knowledge make sure you know it's right so um, it's actually kind of interesting because, you know, when you think of wars, 
you think of like I don't know, like w- the last big war was a while ago. It was before you and I were born. Yeah. So, but Biden is there's like word that he's actually planning a cyber attack on Russia instead of like an actual attack. Yeah. So that would like make it hard. He'd like derail their trains and stuff by like hacking into the train systems or something. Oh yeah. I don't really know much about that. That's just what I've heard. But isn't that so crazy how technology has made its way into every part of our lives, even even warfare? Yep. But I guess cyber invading something over the web and like just making their lives difficult is a lot easier than or better and it, there's not as much loss of human life. Um with a cyber attack than an actual invasion of Russia. And oh. I don't think that that's what we want to do. But it's definitely pretty terrifying. Okay, so apparently President Vladimir Putin declared a start of a, quote, special military operation to demilita- demilitarize Ukraine, but not occupy the, com- the country. And he announced this to the United Nations Security Council. And, uh, ours, and then he did the exact opposite of what he said he was going to do. He invaded Ukraine. So there's that. So a lot of, I don't know how to say this. It's a, it's the city KYIV, Kiev. I'm not sure. But long lines of cars are, be, are evacuating out of there, trying to head west in hopes of finding sanctuary in some of the parts of the country not occupied by the Russians. Yeah. They're lined up at bank machines and stocked up on groceries. People sought protection in subway stations and bomb shelters as air raid sirens sounded out. So just really terrifying stuff. Like, this is the stuff you see in movies. That's what these people in the Ukraine are going through right now. So immigrant advocacy organizations are urging the Biden administration to extend immigration relief to Ukrainians. As we watch in horror the attacks unfolding in the neighborhoods and homes of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, we urge President Biden to protect human life by extending TPS, DED, and SSR to Ukrainians currently in the United States. I have no idea what TPS, DED, and SSR is. Let's look that up real fast. Temporary protected status, so they can come here for a little bit. And then DED stands for Deferred Enforced Departure. So, which so DED allows certain individuals from designated countries and regions facing political or civic conflict or natural disaster to stay in the United States. So SSR is special student relief. It's a suspension of certain regulatory requirements by the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security for students from parts of the world that are experiencing emergent circumstances. So that's just for students to come here and continue their studies here, which is cool. So the United States has not seen Russia employ the full scope of electronic warfare capabilities, the senior defense official says. So I feel like a lot of this war will be fought electronically, Yeah. which is scary, but it's also kind of, it's nice to think that lives will not be lost, or I'm sure lives will be lost. Lives have already been lost in the bombings and air raids, but um, less, less human life will be lost. Which is the goal, right? In a sense. More local news. In Billings, we have had a cold front. <laughs> Obviously, if you live here, you're aware of that. I bet uh, you're not used to much snow from your, where you're from, Jordan. Uh, some snow, but I'm used to the cold. Used to the cold. cold really? Oh, yeah. In New Mexico? Oh, yeah. How cold does it get there? Uh, not that bad. Usually, like, in the low, low single digit, 
those in the digits. Oh, uh, yeah. That's pretty cold. I feel like anything below zero just feels the same. Honestly, it just hurt. Yeah, the temperature is hurt. Yeah, just add the wind to it. Yeah. And, and it's a whole different, whole different animal. The temperature outside is ouch. Yeah, especially yesterday going in class. Oh, my God. It's like, oh, I hate when you're walking and it hurts your face. And it hurts to breathe. And you're, like, trying to get oxygen, but it just hurts. Yeah. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time for... Stories with Jordan. All right, so, so f- since we are in the month of February still, I de- I decided to dedicate this month to dedicate stories with stories with Jay Jay for, for Black History Month edition. So throughout this ti- so throughout this entire month, I will my, all my stories will, will be based on Black historical figures. Some that be, may have been swept underneath the rug or haven't been or haven't had their stories being told. So. Mm-hmm. All right. So for the first story is is if it's from a black black pianist pianist protege that was stayed that stayed back back in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, and she is one of the f- one of the first black pianist pi- protege ever. You can separate peace from freedom because no one can be at peace unless he has his freedom. Malcolm X, Hazel Scott, the black pianist protege. Hazel Scott is an outspoken civil rights activist who utilized her star power to fight racism, but then she was accused of being a communist and and it nearly destroyed her her career. On June 11, 1920, Hazel Scott was born in Trinidad and and emerged to to New York where, uh, emerged to New New York settling in Harlem. Her, Her mother, Alma Scott opened a restaurant, took up took up her saxophone and formed a girl band. Their apartment became a gathering spot for artists and musicians during the Harlem Renaissance, when their neighborhood became the black, became the artistic center for Black Americans in New York. Billy Holiday and Lester Young were among Scott's regular guests and no doubt deeply influenced young Hazel Scott. But it was her mother who fostered her musical spirit and boldly brought her to audition at Juilliard when when she was just eight years old, ignoring the school's minimum age of age for entry at the time, which was sixteen. Scott's story in, in the spotlight began in nineteen twenty eight when Dr. Frank Damrosch, the dean of Juilliard School, heard her playing in the audition room. He was shocked to discover that the classical protege he heard was an eight year old girl with bows in her hair, her legs dangling off the piano bench. Hazel became the youngest person ever to enroll at Juilliard at the end of her great audition. From there, her career skyrocketed, but her immense fame was also proved to her undoing. While studying classical music at Juilliard, she also absorbed boogie-woogie and blues from Fats Waller and Art Art Tatum. She would eventually become known for her modern renditions of vintage classics Scott played in her mother's band and make her solo debut at 15. Playing after the Count Basie Orchestra at the Roseland Ballroom, still only a teen, she hosted a radio show and performed on Broadway. Wow, that's so crazy at eight years old to like be able to do that. When I was eight, I was literally probably eating crayons, honestly, (laughs) (laughs) doing some dumb stuff like that. Like I, I cannot imagine. I just, I'm so jealous of people who just born with that talent you know oh yeah yeah especially probably being around 
around the Harlem Renaissance at that time. Uh-huh. Pop Probably. Played like a huge imp- huge factor on on her pursuing the p- pursuing music as well. For sure. Scott Scott began to play up tempo renditions of classical pieces by Chop by Chopin Chopin Batch and and Rachmaninoff. During during this was called swing sw- swinging the classics. And it has been done before, but no one could do it quite like Scott. Then, as the emission, as the intermission pianist for her, for famous lounge singer Fra- Frances Faye, she she found a signature act that would that, that would cultivate her to fame. In 1938, a Jewish shoe salesman with no experience in nightlife opened a jazz club in Greenwich Village. His name was Bernard Josephson, and named his club club. Cafe Society, the wrong place for the right people. Unlike just like any other club in the city at the time, Cafe Society was fully integrated. Audience members of all races sat at the same table, danced together, and shared the stage. The club opened on New Year's Eve with Billie Hartley singing her famously emotional song, Strange Fruit. Speaking of Billie Holiday. When Holiday left her in- engagement at Cafe Society three weeks earlier, she insisted that Scott take her place. At 19, Scott took the stage and became the darling of ca- Cafe Society. Indeed, Josephson even opened a swanker branch of Cafe Society uptown to install Scott at the reg- at, as the regular headliner. Times Magazine wrote, wrote of her ability to modernize the classics. Classicists who went at the idea of gibbeting touched sky feel feel no pain whatever whatever as as they watch her do strange notes and rhythms creeped in the melody it it tortured with hints of boogie woogie until finally happily hazel scott surrenders her to her worst nature and beats beats the p key key keyboard in into a rack rack of bones by now it was the 1940s, and through Scott was was in high demand even by white audiences. She had some requests of her own before agreeing to play. While touring the country, if she arrived at a venue denying black people entry, she would refuse to play. Why will you come come hear me, a Negro, and refuse to sit besides anyone just like me? She insisted. Sometimes she'll simply take her pay from the racist venue and leave. Nice. That's awesome. So she'd just be like, give me my money. I'm not playing. Goodbye. Yep, basically. Wow. That's funny. That's what I'd do, too, if I was her, honestly. Yeah. In the er- early 1940s, Hollywood came quartering, but Scott also faced the challenges of, of pervasive racism in the studio system. Scott appeared in five films, including Something She Shout About, which featured the original music by Cole Poulter and I I Do That, where she and famous jazz musician of color named Lena Horn stole the show. At Columbia Pictures, Scott demanded the final say in her wardrobe and, and musical numbers. She also insisted that she received the same pay as her white counterparts. Josephson helped her negotiate a salary of $4,000 per week, which is about 60000 by today's standards. In comparison, Hattie McDonald, who won an Oscar for her portrayal of Mammy in Gone with the Wind, was paid $700 per week. It wa- was paid 700 Yeah. So she was paid more than her white counterparts? Basically. It, wa- it was 1943. The United States was, was in the thick of World War II. Scott, wa- Scott was to play the song, The Co- Cohesions, 
go ro rolling along a raw, raw patri patriotic number with black soldiers breaking into dance with their sweethearts as they leave for war. But it was long before Scott ran off of, of, of Hollywood during the heat of the filming. Returning to her dressing room after rehearsal, Scott overheard the choreographer telling the costume designer to wipe oil and dirt on, on the woman's apron because they were too clean. Scott, Scott was livid. I insist that no scene in which I was involved would display black women wearing dirty aprons to send their men to die for their country. So, so she staged a strike for three days, production stopped, costing, costing the studio thousands of dollars. Finally, the women were allowed to wear their own clothes. Scott had won the battle, but she had antagonized the head of Columbia Pictures, who vowed she would never set foot in another movie studio along as long as I live. So Scott was on this movie production. Yes. And they wanted the black women, the black actresses, to wear dirty aprons. Yeah. Do you know why? Just to make it look more realistic? Yeah, basically. Huh. And they didn't they didn't want to wear dirty aprons? Yeah. Why why not? I'm not quite sure. Because like I feel like if you want if if it's in the spirit of making it look more realistic, nah, I don't really get that. But I mean good for them for standing up for what they believe in. Yeah. Yeah, but off 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 screen and off stage Scott let an e Scott let an equally theatrical love. She found a love for Adam Clayton Powell Jr., the pastor of Harlem's powerful Ab Abyssinian Baptist Church and the first black black man elected to New York City's council. He was also married, but when he met Scott, he was willing to risk his reputation and pursue her. Ooh, shoot, that's yeah. not good. Yeah, messing with a married man. Yeah, and he was on New York Council. Oh shoot! What it, was he African American or what? Yep. Okay. The first black man to ever be on New York City New York's Council. Dang. And their affair was open and stand scandalous, and the press had a field day when Powell was elected to Congress and brought Scott to the inauguration instead of his wife. Oh my goodness! I can't even imagine what the press were saying. Oh. Eleven days after Powell's divorce, he married Scott in what would be one of the biggest celebrity weddings in the 1945s. Life magazine covered their reception, which was attended by who, who's who musicians, p politicians, and artists. 2,000 onlookers gathered, gathered to catch a glimpse of the bride and groom. They were quickly the most famous black couple in America. Soon after the wedding, Powell asked Scott to stop working in nightclubs as he believed, believed it was uns unsuitable work for a pastor's wife. Scott agreed and gave up her lucrative weekly gig at, at Cafe Society with mixed emotions. Instead, she began touring concert halls and found new fronts in battle against racism. Hmm. I don't know how I feel about that. Like, mm, you can't perform in a nightclub because you're married to me. Yep. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know. I really know. And she canceled a presidential performance at the National Press Club because black journalists were not allowed to be members. After after a dinner in Spokane refused to serve her, she sued and won, and won a settlement of $250, which she donated to the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. She also broke new ground in television. A maverick channel known as Dumont Networks offered her a 15-minute show that would run on Friday nights in 1950. Scott became the first black woman to host her own television show, The Hazel Scott Show, which was so popular that it was soon broadcast nationally three times a week. Wow. That's awesome. 
and as as was the case with many influential black people in her time, Scott eventually defamed by by a political campaign against against her. The same year, she became the first black woman to host her own show. Scott was blacklisted on red channels, a red a red ring paper paper identifying suspect communists. Despite her husband's advice, she volunteered to appear before the House Un-American Act Activities Committee, HUAC, to clear her name. At the hearing, Scott commended Red Channels for publishing names without verification and stamped the practice of blacklisting artists. Her name was splattered all across new newspapers in connection with communist scare. Nonetheless, Unwilling to play in segregated halls and unable to perform in nightclubs because of her agreement with her husband, her opportunities became more and more limited. Dumont Network canceled her contract within three weeks and concert bookings became harder to come by. Finally, Scott decided to go ahead abroad, aboard. Scott toured London, Paris, Greece, and Jerusalem. At the time, Powell came along unofficially acting as, as her manager. They moved through Europe like American royalty, living in lavish hotels where they entertained celebrity friends, but behind glamorous fast facade, their marriage fell apart. Powell later said he was probably secretly jealous of his wife's career. Scott moved to Paris with, with their son. They divorced in 1960. By then, by then jazz was giving, giving way to rock and roll. Through Scott had been one of the highest paid musicians in her time. She struggled to survive on jobs that were few and far between. In 1967, she returned to America and faced a barrage of criticism for leaving just when the fight up for civil rights had intensified. She managed to find work and play for devoted fans at the Keynes Film Festivals um, on the Queen Mary, a swanky hotel lawn, lounges, and small nightclubs. But then in 1981, Scott died of pancreatic cancer just after leave, landing a long-term gig in the club named after her. Any woman who, who has a great deal to offer to the world is in trouble, she once mused. And if she was a black woman, she is in deep trouble. As a prominent jazz pianist and outspoken crusader against injustice, Scott paved the way for black women in television, movies, and state. She deserved, deserves an ex-hall ex place in pan pantheon of jazz legends and in the hall of America's boldest civil reformers. Wow, I just got goosebumps. That was a nice story. Some of the parts of it, I was like, he, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But the overall message is like, it's just, yeah. Um, yep. The pianist prodigy. Yep. I wish I was a prodigy <laughs> at literally anything. That'd be cool. Oh, yeah. Be a prodigy lawyer. Yeah, I guess so. Be like eight years old in the courtroom. She. I object. <laughs> I don't think anybody would take me very seriously. No. But it would be funny. Oh, yeah. And for the second story, I chose chose to do this story internationally because because I found because so one, so a couple of days we right before we were we were scheduled to, re to record this podcast, I was on my phone phone messing around, scrolling through different news news cycles, then I saw I found the story story and I started re reading it and I found it very interesting and I'm and I'm sure the audience will find this interesting as well. I'm excited. 
you cannot carry out fundamental change without a certain amount of madness. In this case, it comes from nonconformity, the courage to turn your back on the old formulas, the courage to invent the future. It took the madman of yesterday for us to be able to act with extreme clarity today. I want to be one of those madmen. We must dare to invent the future. Thomas Sankara. As this is Thomas Sankara, the revolutionary president of, of Burkina Faso. Faso. President of where? Burkina Faso. Where's that at? Uh, that's in Africa. Okay. Thomas Sankara was the only president of Burkina Faso for four years, but he improved the literacy, liberated women, and spoke out against imperialism before his assassination in 1987. A surviving witness described the gunfire from, from Kalashnikovo rifles as raining raining falling on a tin on a tin roof within minutes thomas sakara burkina faso young young and charismatic president was dead in power for just four years sankara had instituted a wide sweeping reforms that liberated women improved literacy and helped environment he even renamed the con country casting aside its french colonial name upper vata for Burkina Faso or land of upright people. Nice. I don't know how much um, you know about the uh, colonization of Africa, but basically there was this conference and it's called, uh, I think it, the Conference of Berlin or something like that. Yeah. And all these world leaders got together and decided how they were going to split up Africa. And there was no representatives from Africa there, obviously. Why would there be? Yeah. Um, why would they ask the native people what they think? But basically, that's and that actually really divided Africa because they would draw borders in between tribes, in between peoples, and it, or they'd put two peoples that didn't like each other in one like section of Africa. Yeah. So it was really like Africa was this big cake, and they just gave everybody a piece of it except for you know the people who actually lived there. Oh yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing about that story as well. Yeah. So it's really cool that he renamed. Uh, his country. Yeah. But not everybody was happy with, with Sankara's reforms. Some were threatened by Sankara's anti-imperialist stance. Others found him at the best eccentric and at the worst brutal and, and oppressive. Through most lay blame for his assa assassination at the feet of his former friend, Belize Com Compore. Ooh, Other a scandal. Yep. Other words, if France had, had a heavy hand in this, the Thomas Isidore Noel Sankara grew up in a rapidly changing world. Born on December 21st, 1949, in a French colony of Upper Volta, he came to age as France, France power dimish, diminished. In 1960, Upper Volta shook off the shackles of colonialism and declared its independence. Sankara had, had an independent spirit too. Though his Roman Catholic parents hoped their son would become a priest, Sankara had other ideas. Instead, to his parents' charging, Thomas Sakara set out to become a soldier. In the military, he absorbed new ideas about the world. He read about revolutionaries while living in France and watching a revolutionary unfold in Madagascar. He even saw action in 1974 during the border clash with neighboring Mali, from which Sakara emerged as something of a hero. All the while, Thomas Sakara had begun to develop his own ideas. A soldier without political education is but a criminal in power. He mused while stationed in Madagascar and following his role in the Mali conflict, Sakara wrote 
wrote that he was pro profoundly troubled by the injustice and useless fight. Unjustice, unjust or not, Thomas Sakara emerged from the border conflict as a public figure, and and his star rose as political inst instability rack rack racked the country. In 1983, the 33-year-old was was taped to be prime minister for the government for President Jean Baptiste or Odrigo, who seized power in in a coup d'état the year before. Sankara didn't last long as the prime minister. Bigger things were on the horizon. As prime minister, Thomas Sankara frequently clashed with Jean Baptiste Odrigo. The president was conservative and Western-oriented. Sakara was progressive and, and a staunch anti-imperialist. By May 1983, Odrigo had, had had enough. He dismissed Sakara and threw him in jail. But Sakara's friend and compa compadre, Belize Comparvor, organized a, an August coup d'etat remove Odrigo from power. From the ashes of that coup, Thomas Sakara became the new president of Upper Volta. Sakara told the people of Upper Volta two months later that the purpose of the coup was to eliminate imperialist domination and exploitation, and urged the countryside of all social, economic, and cultural ob obstacles that keep, in the, keep it in the back backward state. Then Thomas Sakara got to work over the next four years. Sakara instituted several dramatic for reforms that tra transformed the country, in some cases, literally. On the first anniversary of his presidency, he changed Upper Volta to Burkina Faso, which roughly translates to the land of the upright people in, in two of the country's indigenous language, languages. That's neat. Under his watch, 2.5 million children were vaccinated against diseases like, like ming mingaitis and measles. Liter literacy rates soared from 13% in 1983 to 73% in 1987. Thanks to the newly free comp compulsory education and 10 billion trees were planted to prevent de desert deforestation. Sakara also elevated Burkina Faso's women outlawing practices like polygamy, forced marriage, genit genital mutation, and welcomed women into high-level roles in his government. Burkina Faso's new president embraced the new world order he wanted to build. Sakara reduced his salary to 450 $450 a month. He replaced the government Mercedes with cheaper renewals. The president even refused air conditioning in his office as it was a luxury few could afford. On the world stage, he was forceful about Africa's independence. We adopt as our own affirmation of the doctrine whereby Europeans must not intervene in, Im in American affairs. Sakara thundered to the UN in 1984, just as just as Monroe proclaimed Americas to the Americas. In 1823, we echoed this today by saying Africa is to Africans. Burkira and to be Burkinabi to his fellow citizens, he warned, he warned, he who feeds you controls you. He and pushed for Burkira Faso to be self-sufficient, inspiring countless people with his bold stance. However, not everyone admired the ambitious young president. Federal lords resented that he'll redistribute their lands, whispered spread that Sakara's opponents were tortured, and some despised Sakura's stranger orders, like the government employees were clothing made from local cotton, plus world powers like the United States watched the displeasure as Sakara straightened his ties with Liberia's Mamar Gaddafi and Cuba's Fidel Castro. Sakara even wore a Mother of Pearl 
pistol at his hip gifted to him by the North Korean Kim Sung. Sakara goes further than necessary, in my opinion, the French president, Francois Mitterrand, said. By 1987, Sakura had made plenty of enemies, and one of them was his old friend, Felice Capore. As Capore tells it, a group of young young men loyal to him heard that Sakura planned to kill him, so they struck first. On October 15, 1987, they ambushed Sakura on, on his way to a government meeting. A Western diplomat who spoke to one of Sakura's surviving bodyguards described the assassination. Sakura raised his hand and said, Take me. I'm the one you want. Kampore's men sprayed him with with Kalashnikov rifle, then finished him off with a grenade. But the story of Thomas Sakara doesn't simply end there. After burying Sakara and his men in unmarked grave, Felice Kapora assumed presidency. He held the power in Burkina Faso until he was forced to resign in 2014 following widespread protests. Until today, Sakara. Thomas Sakara is seen as a human in Burkina Faso. His face adores stickers, t-shirts, and there's even a giant statue of him in the country's capital, Ogurata. But questions remain about his death. Though, though Kampare always denied explicitly ordering Sakara's assassination, he and 13 other men currently on trial for his death. Kampare living in exile in the Ivory Coast is being tried, tried in absence, Dina. We worry we have been waiting for this moment, said Mariam Sakara, Thomas Sakara's widow. Though she is convinced that Kampare orchestrated her husband's death, Maradam thinks he had help from France. Indeed, France has long faced such allegations, and the French President Emmanuel Macron even agreed to send several declassified files to Burkina Faso for review in 2007. However, he did not send the form. Francis Mitterrand, whose presidency overlapped with Sakara. Though his life and presidency were cut short, Thomas Sakara's legacy remains compelling to many living in Burkina Faso. Sakara himself understood that, noting a week before he died, while revolutionaries as individuals can be murdered, you cannot kill ideas. Wow. That's that's really cool. Uh, I'm a little bit confused at the part where you said that he was friends with, like, Fidel Castro. Yeah. He was friends with them. Yeah, they were like building alliance. Alliance with. Oh, interesting. Because he's such a progressive leader, so it's just it's. I think it's just because because of the ideas of going against your Europe, European, going against Europe and oh, Americans' ideology. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Like because they were done wrong by. Yeah. Europeans. As many were. Yep. Oh, that's very interesting, Jordan. Thank you very much for your stories. Yep. And one last story. Um, so if you're from Cascade, Montana, you may have heard about this woman. as And she is considered to be one of the toughest women who has the temperament of a grizzly bear. Stagecoach Mary. America's first black post woman. They say Mary Fields had, had the temperament of a grizzly bear and a quick hand to draw. But it will be be her devotion to hear her community, com- community that made her a legend across the wild west. Aloft on the stagecoach pulled by by team team of horses, stagecoach Mary feels covered over 300 miles every week to deliver mail across the west at the turn turn of the 20th century. A six foot tall courier, she, well she had 
had to have a temperament of the grizzly bear and kept a revolver and a rifle on her person. Oh, yeah, I'm sure she'd have to defend herself, especially in the Wild West. Yeah. As a black woman, there's nothing to protect herself. Yeah. Nothing to protect her except for her, so. And when she wasn't delivering mail, the postwoman of the Wild West was usually seen at the saloon or smoking a cigar. As the first black woman to write for the U.S. Postal Service, Mary Fields was ju- wasn't just tough, but she was one of a kind. Her grit and novel novelty aside, it was stagecoach Mary's commitment to her community that transformed her into a legend, as this is her story. Mary Fields was born into slavery in, ni- in 1832 in Hickman County, Tennessee. The details of Mary Fields' early life are somewhat uncertain. According to some of the biographers, her mother was an enslaved house house, and her father was a field enslaved person. Fields' life comes into focus for historians after becoming a free woman in her 30s following the Civil War. Then Fields reportedly left Tennessee for Mississippi where she worked as a maid under steamboat Robert E. Lee. She eventually took a job as a servant in the home of Judge Imad Dooney in Ohio where she met, met Dooney's sister, Mother um, Amadeus. The latter, w- latter was Mother Superior to the Ursuline Covent Covent in Toledo. Mother Mary Amadeus brought Fields to, to work at the Covent as a groundskeeper, but Fields, Fields quickly ruffled some feathers there. When one sister asked Fields about her journey to Toledo, Fields re- replied that she needed a good cigar and a drink. Another nun complained, God help anyone walk on this lawn after Mary had cut it. The furious groundskeeper with a difficult nature even loudly complained about her pay. In 1885, Mary Fields left Ohio behind to travel to West to West St. Peter's Covent in the wild lands of Montana, where Mother Amethyst had established a children's boarding school. Mother Amethyst had fallen ill with pneumonia and personally called for Fields to serve serve the nuns and then nurse her back to health. But Mother Amethyst recovered. Fields decided to settle in the new Covent. She took over Covent's wagon team and haul supplies. She also transported visitors to and from the train station, and and when she when her wagon flipped after the pack of wolves spooked the horses, Mary Fields guarded the supplies for an entire night, single-handedly feeding off the group. When she wasn't assisting nuns and students and seeing the chickens and seeing the chickens and vegetables on the Ursuline Covent, Mary Fields visited visited saloons, got into fistfights, and smoked cigars. She was also trained with a revolver and a rifle earning the reputation as a crack shot. Though part of her charm, her temperament will also be her undoing at the covent when heated confrontation with the janitor caught the attention of Montana's Bishop Barndale. Fields and the covent janitor had pulled guns on each other during an argument and Barndale consequently had her removed from the position there. But Mary Fields still had a strong ally in Mother Amidius who encouraged Fields to move to nearby Cascade, Montana where she was the only black resident there. At first, the nuns helped her finance a restaurant, but the business failed. In 1885, Mother Mary Amidius helped Fields apply for another job as a U.S. Postal Service mail carrier. By now, Mary Fields was in her 60s. Mary Fields secured the position when she hitched, hitched a team of six horses to, to a postal coach faster than any other applicant. She then began her daily 17-mile trek from Cascade to St. Peter's. She was the second woman in U.S. history to ride a mail route. 
Mary Fish stood out as the only black woman delivering mail in the West. She earned the nickname Stagecoach Mary as she rode her route carrying a rifle and a revolver. Stagecoach Mary worked as a star route carrier protecting the mail from bandits. She rode her stagecoach from to the train station to pick up mail and then delivered it on several routes. Some of were more than 40 miles. In all, stage, Stagecoach Mary drove over 300 miles each week to deliver mail when the winter snow blocked the roads. Mary fields through, through a mail sack on her shoulder and walked 30 miles wearing snowshoes. Montanans applaud Mary Fields for her commitment and her kindness. In her 60s and 70s, Stagecoach Mary had become a local legend. At 200 pounds, she vowed that she could knock out any man with a single punch, and she never lost a bet. The mayor of Cascade declared that Mary Fields could drink in saloon, make her the only woman at the bar who wasn't a prostitute. Wow. I mean, six feet tall, 200 pounds, it's, it sounds big, but like she's still pretty, she must have been pretty lean. Yeah. Because when you're, when you're that tall, it's not hard to weigh over 200 pounds oh yeah and on her 80th birthday local newspaper anaconda stanford wrote to wrote a stage coach mary's mary's friends claim claim if, if a fly landed on landed on the ear of her horses she could use her choice to either shoot it at shoot it off or picking it off with the whipping and if and if she was in mind shoot she she could break the fly's hind leg with her whip and shoot its eye out with the revolver after eight years of delivery mail, Mary Fields left her stagecoach behind and opened a laundry business where at a local bar, Fields spotted a con- customer who had to pay his $2 laundry bill. She left the bar, punched the consumer, and returned to declare his laundry bill is paid. <laughs> so <laughs> if you can't make your payment, you're going to get punched in the face. Yep. I mean, I think that's how we should go about things these days, too. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, honestly, I'd rather have the money than punch someone in the face. Yeah. That's just me, though. Though the American frontier is often associated with bandits and bandits, thieves, and bigots, Mary Fields managed to make, make allies wherever she traveled. The owner of local Cascade Hotel, for instance, mandated that Fields could eat there for free for the rest of her life. Two years later, when her home and business burned to the ground, the townspeople all came together to build Stagecoach Mary a new home. Despite her grit, her neighbors were beloved, who entrusted their children with her. She made bouquets of flowers for the local baseball team as as she was one of their biggest supporters. When Mary Fields died on December 5th, 1914, her funeral was was among the biggest, biggest, biggest the town of Cascade had, had yet ever seen. Gary Cooper, who would become a Hollywood star in the dozens of westerns, met Mary Fields in Cascade when he was nine years old. Years later, Cooper eulogy born a slave somewhere in Tennessee. Say in 1932, Mary became the f- became one of the freest souls to ever draw a beneath or 32, 38. That's awesome. I think that's one of my favorite ones you've told yet. Just this absolute badass running through the Wild West, mm-hmm. delivering mail, not afraid of anything, could literally like kill you with a look. Like that's awesome, especially that early too in time, like in the the turn of the century. That's nice. Yep. Very cool. Makes me want to be a postal carrier. I honestly don't think I could do it though, especially in Montana. I mean, I mean, depends on where you are in Montana, because a lot of places are pretty flat, but also a lot of places are pretty mountainous. Alrighty, jackets. I think that's all we have for you this week. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, 
Uh, make sure to follow us on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcast, and Facebook. Facebook is our main social media at the moment. So make sure you do that. And we will see you next week. You judge the true character and caliber of a person, not where, th- where they stand in times of comfort and convenience. You judge the true character and caliber of a person by what they stand for in times of challenge and controversy. Dr. Martin Luther King. Oh.